All right, welcome back to The Drive Home with Timothy. My name is Dustin, and this is a true drive home with Timothy. I've got him sitting in the back seat here today. Timothy, say hi. And you probably didn't hear that, and you probably never will. Uh, not a whole lot of business today. Let's just jump straight into our story. Um, I want to I tell you a story today. It's a true story, and I'm going to let it speak for itself, and we'll see if we can pull some kind of meaning out of it. Um, the story starts in 1910 at Harvard University. Not just anywhere at Harvard University, but this is a meeting for the Harvard Mathematical Club or Harvard Mathematical Society. And they have a lecturer there by the name of William James Sidus. And the topic for the evening is fourth dimensional or four dimensional bodies. And you don't know what that means. And I don't know what that means. And if you think you know what it means, shut up. You don't know what that means. You think you're better than me? You don't know what that means. We live in a three-dimensional world. You understand? You can't just add dimensions and then have everybody be like, oh, that makes sense. So if you're, this is the way it was explained to me. If you live in a one-dimensional system, universe, whatever, you are on a straight line. You can move forward on that line and backwards. You cannot go left and right. You cannot go up and down. If there is an object in your way, you're stuck. You can't get past it because there's only one dimension. Unless you live in a two-dimensional world. Now you can go front, back, and left and right. So if there's an object in your way, you can simply go around it, right? It's like going on a bear hunt. Can't go around. It's like that, but for smarter people. Um, if you're in a two-dimensional world and somebody builds a wall all the way around you, you can't go above it because you can't go up and down. Now you can just go left, right, forward, and backwards, right? Are you staying with me? Unless you live in a three-dimensional world, which is where you and I live. Now you can jump over the wall or tunnel under it. If somebody puts you in a room with four walls, a ceiling, and a floor, you cannot get out. Right? You've exhausted all three of your dimensions. Unless you live in a four-dimensional universe, now you can escape through the fourth dimension, whatever that means. I don't think anybody—I've heard— I've heard that the fourth dimension is time, and that's not true at all. Because time is not even a... That's a whole other thing. You can't just take a thing that exists in the three-dimensional universe and be like, that's the fourth dimension. No. You, you're making... You're, you're cramming that puzzle piece in there to try to make it fit, and it doesn't fit. But anyway, at Harvard, this is what they're talking about in 1910 on a January evening with the, the lecturer, William Sidus. Uh, there are about 100 people in attendance, including professors and advanced uh, mathematical students. Most of them did not understand the bulk of what was talked about, obviously, because it's fourth dimensional nonsense that only geniuses can understand. There were also newspaper reporters there for a reason we'll get to in a second. One of the professors in attendance later, after the meeting, told one of the newspaper reporters, this lecturer that we just had, William James Sidus, is one of the most brilliant people I have ever heard from and will go on to become a key figure in the science community and will basically have a very noteworthy life and will change the course of human history. That's how smart he is. Now, the reason that newspaper uh, reporters were there is because William James Sidus at the time was 11 years old. Not only that, as an 11-year-old, he was also a freshman at Harvard University. He was and is still the youngest person ever to 
be accepted to Harvard, which actually happened when he was nine. They were like, hey, you can come to Harvard, but we have a policy that you can't start until 11, which, like, why would you have that policy? You have a lot of 12-year-olds that want to get in or 10-year-olds. So he actually, he got in at nine, but they wouldn't let him start. So he's like, fine, when I'm 10 for my gap year, uh, I'm going to go to another university. He went to Tufts University for a year. And then he goes to Harvard. He graduates at the age of 16, goes straight into Harvard Law. And by the time he's 19, he has graduated from Harvard Law, top of his class. And you and I at 19, that's a different story. We were maybe, hopefully, graduated from high school. Uh, We were working at Foot Locker and saving money so that we could go to the food court at lunch and get one of those big corn dogs with the mustard to dip it in. Um and he's graduated from Harvard Law, top of his class. But his obviously his story doesn't start there because no 11-year-old just walks into Harvard. This guy was raised by a couple of the smartest people probably in history. His dad was a psychologist. His mom was a doctor. And his dad, through his psychological training, had figured out that babies can learn a ton of crap. So... He was like, for the first few years of somebody's life, you just got to squeeze as much information into their brain. You just like cram it all in. And so from the second this kid was born, I mean, he was born, his dad was probably immediately like A, B, C, D. We're just going to start with the basics right off the bat. By the time he's one, some of these things you aren't going to believe, but they're true, probably. I mean, he was born in 1898, so who knows how good of records were kept back then. By the time he's one, he was using a typewriter. A typewriter. And he could type in English and in French at the age of one. At the age of two, he was able to read the New York Times. Um, so he was a little liberal son of a gun at 18 months, but he probably grew out of that. No, he didn't. We'll get, that. We'll get to that later. <coughs> um, at the age of five, he devised a method for figuring out what day of the week any date happened in the last 10,000 years. So you go to him and you're like, hey, Billy. I don't know if they called him Billy. Hey, Bill, you, you're five. Tell me May 7th in the year 702 AD. And he'd be like, yeah, that was a Friday. He, he's five and he figured out. He, he, didn't, he couldn't just do the calculation. He actually made it up. Um, by the age of six, he spoke a bunch of languages, including English, French, German. Uh, there was like Hebrew, Armenian, Turkish, a bunch of languages that even people from those places can't speak by the time they're six. Um, <coughs> excuse me, I keep coughing now. Uh, but oh, also at the age of six, he started public school, which when he was growing up, public school was there for seven years. You had seven years. And he finished that in six months. So by the time he's six and a half, they sent him home. They're like, listen, you're smarter than all of our teachers now. We can't teach you anything. So uh, go figure it out on your own. He actually, by the time he was eight, he created his own language. He mixed together, uh, I think it was like Latin and Greek and German and French. And he called it Vendor something. Vendor Good or Vendor, Vendor Tog. I don't know. doesn't matter. He didn't have any friends, obviously. You don't, I mean, when you're like seven, eight years old and everybody else who's seven, eight years old is telling fart jokes and riding bikes 
and you're making languages and typing in, in your own language and all the stuff you do. Like, nobody, nobody wants to hang out with you. And you also, why would you want to hang out with those dummies? It'd be like, it'd be like me hanging out with ladybugs. It'd be like, they don't understand my stories and my theories. Why do I want to talk to them? Um, the only thing he really liked to do was ride on streetcars with his parents. He'd just get on a trolley and just go. And he really liked the idea that you could do the, these transfers where you ask the driver for a transfer, you get off at the next station and get on a different streetcar, and then you ask that driver for a transfer and get on a different streetcar. And you can basically ride forever. You just pay for one ticket and you ride forever. And later on in his life, he was like, I think... I could buy one ticket and travel all throughout the entire country. Although you could never really leave the station. You'd have to bring all your food with you and how you're going to go to the bathroom and all that stuff. Um, he wrote a book later in life that one of his, that a book critic called the most boring book ever written. And it was about the history of streetcar transfer tickets. He talked about like where the paper came from and stuff. This, it's got to be so tortured to be that smart because you're like, I just have to know everything about everything. You run out of interesting things and you still got to keep learning. Um, so he does the whole Harvard thing. By the time he graduates Harvard, he doesn't want to, he doesn't want any more attention. You know, his little lecture brought the, the newspaper people. They showed up at his graduation. They showed up at his Harvard Law graduation and they keep asking him, what are you going to do? And they're just like chasing him all over the place, trying to get quotes from him. And finally, he's like, I want to live a perfect life. And the perfect life has to be lived in seclusion. So everybody, screw off. I don't want to talk to you anymore. Um, and he goes and he teaches at Rice University, which if you want to be anonymous, go teach at Rice University. You don't know where that is. You might be there right now and you don't still know where that is. Uh, but he didn't stay there very long because all of his students were older than him and everybody just kept treating him like a genius. And they would just come and be like, hey, Bill, uh, July 9th, the year 1702. And he was like, it's a Thursday. Shut up. Leave me alone. Uh, and they were asking him all these deep questions. And so he quit. And he went back to Boston and he just started working these little meaningless jobs that didn't pay very much. He liked to run basically calculators because he didn't have to think at all. And um, as soon as somebody would find out who he was and start treating him like a genius, he would just vanish and not show up the next day, and he'd move on to a different place, a um, different part of town, or sometimes a different town entirely, and a different job. Eventually, in Boston, he shows up at some socialist uh, march and he gets arrested for inciting a riot and assaulting a police officer. And so that's what happens. The moral of the story is if you have your one-and-a-half-year-old reading the New York Times, they're going to become a socialist, and they're going to go to jail because they're going to punch police officers. And I know some of you want to be like, blue lives matter. That's not what we're talking about right now. We don't care about that police officer. The police officer was probably fine. Um. So he gets arrested. He's sentenced to a year and a half in jail. But when they let him out on bail, he just runs away. And he starts using different names and working different jobs. And he's sort of running all over the country. And um, But he's still smart. So he's publishing books and stuff. He publishes his um, the, the streetcar transfer book under the name of Frank Falupa. He wrote another book under the name John Shattuck. 
he used the names Barry Mulligan, Charles Beals, Jacob Marmer. He wrote a weekly column uh, in a newspaper under the name Parker Green. Uh, he's basically just hiding from his brilliance. And he lived a tortured life. And he hated the spotlight, and he kind of hated being smart, but he was still brilliant, so he's, he's got to write all these things down and get them out of his system. Um, but he can't use his own name. Eventually, the New York Times writes some kind of where-are-they-now article about him that he hated, and so he sued them, and he lost the case. He sued for, like, defamation of character or something. He took it all the way to the Supreme Court. It took, like, years, a few years and he lost. And not long after he lost, he died alone, didn't have a good job, didn't have a family. He was basically renting a room from some lady, and she found him dead um, of, and listen to the irony in this, a cerebral hemorrhage. So his brain, the thing that made him more gifted than maybe anybody in history, or maybe it was blood flow to his brain. Maybe we all have the same kind of brain, but his just got more blood. Either way, his brain bled, and that's what killed him. And I would argue it killed him long before he died, because by the time he was 19, he was just over it. Didn't seem to get any joy out of life, and it was his spectacular brain that seemed to ruin it all for him. There are people who measure people's IQ after they have died. Just in history, like looking through their works, they, they try to estimate <coughs> what their IQ was when they were alive. IQ, if you don't know, has a baseline of 100. So the average is 100, and most people are really close to 100. If you're really smart, you might be like 110. That's, that's pretty smart. If you're super stupid, you're probably 90. If you're in the 80s, then I don't know what to tell you. You wouldn't understand it even if I said it. If you're, if you're under 70, we need to put a helmet on you just to go through life, and we hope you don't hurt anybody during your boring, stupid, unintelligent life. If you're over 130, you are considered exceptionally gifted. You are a genius at 130. So... A few people from history that are notable. Albert Einstein had a monstrous IQ of 160. That is intelligence you and I will never understand and frankly wouldn't recognize it if it sat next to us on a bus. Um, Leonardo da Vinci, who some of you think is just a painter, <coughs> some of you think all he did was paint the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Guess what, dummy? He didn't even paint that ceiling. He did other stuff. He painted that one thing of the, the lady with the weird smile. He also was in Ever After. Remember with Drew Barrymore and he was like walking on the water with his wooden shoes and then he falls in and um, he's trying to get her to marry a prince and stuff? That's Leonardo DiCaprio. He also invented a ton of crap. He made a flying machine in the year, whatever year he lived, like 1200 or like 400 or like 1920. And he... <laughs> Excuse me. I keep coughing. I should probably go get tested. Um, he was brilliant, and he had an IQ of like 180, they think. Um, Sir Isaac Newton, who might be the single most 
uh, accomplished scientist in the history of anything who like invented apples falling out of trees and gravity and like force equals mass times acceleration and the law of increasing disorder and all these other like he figured out calculus in three months. It didn't even exist and he made it happen in three months. It took me like four years to study that. And I don't know it now. He had an IQ of 190, which is unheard of. And the only person I could find with an IQ higher then Sir Isaac Newton, this is why I actually found this guy, was William James Sidus. His IQ is estimated to be between, listen up now, 250, 250, and three mother bleeping hundred. That's up to three times smarter than you. It's up to four times smarter than some of you. Um, I don't know why I'm getting mean. I think I'm just hungry. Sorry. Um, you're all very smart. I love all of you. Thank you for being here. But he, 250 to 300, this is, he has the highest, um, highest recorded IQ. Now, granted, this is, it wasn't measured while he was alive. So, you know, he might be a little bit off from that. But he is, by all accounts, the most brilliant man in terms of raw intelligence, most brilliant person to ever live. And it didn't even help him. I mean, here's the thing. I don't know. We'll let this story speak for itself. You can take from it what you will. But here's what I'm thinking. Number one, intelligence is good to a point. And maybe it makes me grateful that I have my dumb little brain. Because my dumb little brain isn't going to push me out of society and make me hide and use fake names and, and not connect with people and eventually live a sad, lonely life and have a sad, lonely, anonymous death to be found by my landlady in my apartment. You know, that's, if that happens to me, it won't because I was, it won't be because I was smart. Um, the other thing is all those people who worked with him and didn't know how smart he was, there's something there, right? Like there's probably more intelligence all around than you can possibly imagine. You, I don't know if you're like me, but you look at somebody and within two seconds, based on the shirt they're wearing or their haircut or whatever, you just be like, ah, you're not smart. Or maybe you think, or maybe you go the other way because they're wearing a certain shirt is like Metallica, man, you're smart. Um, you kind of size people up and you, whether you think you do it or not, you do it. Everybody does it. It's part of being a person, but you're wrong. Probably. I don't know all of the time. Um, because this dude sat next to people who, you know, were like, listen, I'm better at running these math machines than this Sidus guy. I should be promoted above him. I should be, I should be in charge of that dude. Cause that guy's stupid. Meanwhile, he's the smartest person who's ever lived. There's a quote, and I do this thing where I memorize quotes, and then later I twist them all up, and I forget who said them, and I mix up all the words, and sometimes I just make them up uh, and think that they're real. But this one is real. I remember the guy's last name who said it. It was Gold, G-O-U-L-D, but I don't remember whether his first name was John or Jay or James or Stephen or Stephanie, I don't remember. But he said something to the effect, this won't be word for word, so don't look it up. He said, I am somehow less interested in the weight and convolutions of Einstein's brain as, or 
than I am in the near certainty that men of similar talent have lived and died in cotton fields and sweatshops. So wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever you do, somewhere today you will interact with somebody who is a genius and you won't know that they're a genius. They are intellectuals in disguise and they are all around us. And so maybe if you treat everybody like a genius, eventually you'll be right. If you treat everybody like a dummy, eventually you'll be right as well. Again, I'm not going to tell you how to think about this. I'm just going to... What's the quote? The great... Uh, see, I do this thing with quotes again. The great Dan Levitard once said, I'm not, I'm not trying to tell you what to think. I'm simply asking if you would like to. So this story gives you something to think about. And I'm asking, would you like to? Take care.